Hey everyone, have you been enjoying this series? If so, there's something really simple you can do to help us. Go on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you've been using to listen to the show and leave us a nice comment and a good star rating. It just takes a minute and it will do wonders for helping new people discover the series. So, thanks a lot and on with the show. Welcome to London's New York. In today's episode, Dan and I are visiting a place that's really important to me personally, because it's the place where my family and I live, Sunnyside Gardens in Queens, a tiny neighborhood about three miles from midtown Manhattan as the crow flies, tucked in between Long Island City to the west, Woodside to the east, and Astoria to the north. And it's a beautiful little area of two and three-story brick row houses, placed around tree-filled communal courtyards. And walking around in it, you could be forgiven for having trouble believing that you're still in New York City. It's just so pleasant, in an old-fashioned, maybe even European kind of way. Completely unlike the big apartment buildings most people associate with New York, or even the brownstones that are the icons of outer borough living. It's a place that takes some ideas from the city and some from the suburbs and combines them into something really different and actually kind of revolutionary. You know, this is a different kind of habitus. You know, it's not the walled, you know, sidewalks of a, of a Lower East Side. It's not the spaced out Levittowns, you know, little boxes on the hillside. You know, there are these little warrens, these little paths winding through uh, these rows of very unadorned uh, but well-built houses. You know, if you didn't know, you would think, okay, this is just a pleasant little collection of two-family houses. Uh, But really, this was the site of one of the most ambitious and visionary urban planning ideas of the 1920s. You know, it's easy when you're driving through to not notice it. It doesn't stick out that much. And a lot of New York's more utopian uh, plans don't actually stick out that much. If you go to Forest Hills, the buildings also, they're, you know, they're just typical. They, to our eyes, they look just beautiful houses. There doesn't seem anything special. But they're quite radical in their origin and their intentions and their structures. Conversely, you look at something like Rockefeller Center or the Empire State Building, and those look, oh my gosh, they're sticking out, they're so huge, they're so dramatic, but really they're completely conformist in terms of their logic of financing. You know, these are things to make money, sure. But if you need to understand both the background of these buildings, you know, to appreciate the radicalism at their heart, and also, you know, with a real discerning eye, you can understand just even in terms of their design what made them seem pretty revolutionary. Well, I guess for a revolution to be successful, it has to be livable. Well, livability was the revolution. That's the idea. Um, For many people before, the, the, the assumption was the only way of making profit in building was to just build as densely as possible, pack as many people in one area. But for other, some other people, they were thinking, well, why not 
um, through the economies of scale and also by getting rid of some useless infrastructure, devote more areas for park space and uh, still be able to cut down on some expenses. This was first tried out in England. Uh, the idea comes from this guy, Ebenezer Howard, who uh, came up with the vision of the Garden City. And he famously had this illustration of, three, of two magnets, magnets to the city and magnets to the country, and the advantages of both. And basically his idea was that we've reached the point now where they're sort of, the advantages are canceling each other out. Rural life has nature, but it has poverty. City life has uh, civilization, but it has decadence and depravity and also poverty. So how can you put those two things together? And his vision was the Garden City. And there were some Americans who listened to this. Uh, one of the biggest was Lewis Mumford, who uh, was a New Yorker born in the Upper West Side. He really began to stake out in the 1920s this very independent vision of what urban life should be like. And he joined with other architects and planners, including especially this guy Clarence Stein. And they were trying to um, combine the amenities of the city and the country and at the same time make it affordable to working class New Yorkers. That was their vision behind Sunnyside. The, the, the group that owned this whole property was called the City Housing Corporation, and they did not uh, want to make any more than 6% profit. The, the motto was philanthropy plus 6%, basically. And, uh, you know, folks would be able to get loans for their houses here at a much better rate, at a much better with much better policies, I should say, than elsewhere. In the 1920s, um, normally in order to buy a house, you needed to put like 30%, 40% down immediately. It was very difficult to buy your own house. And uh, the City Housing Corporation um, would, you know, put up some of the second mortgages for only like 10%. You know, they would really be encouraging people to buy homeowners. And this is before the FHA, before any other sort of big banks were getting involved in this thing. Another thing they tried to do, and this is what distinguished this place from a garden suburb and makes it a garden city, is they mixed up the forms of tenure in the house, in, in the complex. So you have single-family houses, two-family houses, uh, apartments, and you also had, uh, you know, them encouraging subletting. So you even had, you know, people owning some of the houses and they were encouraging folks to rent out the other floor themselves. And uh, this was you know, unheard of in most developments, they were these sort of single styles of tenure. You know, you have acres and acres of nothing but apartments or homes, but they really wanted to encourage a mixed population here. And, uh, you know, in the 1930s, when some of these folks were getting forced out of their homes, I mean, the City Housing Corporation was fighting with them to help them retain it. It was a very radical spot during that time. It was considered Greenwich Village's suburbs because there were so many radicals, you know, living down there who wound up raising their kids in this area. Going back to Mumford, he really, he felt that um, the problem in modern civilization was not being addressed well by both liberals who were fans of capitalism and also by socialists because both Marxists 
and capitalists believed the future was about uprooting people, getting people to become something different than who they were, making them consumers, making them proletarians. It was about creating new identities, really. And the big way they interpreted modern life was people used to be in these small, intimate communities uh, where everyone knew each other, where everyone was relatively similar, and then they're thrown into the cosmopolis. And some people thought of this as a good thing, other people as a bad thing. But both Marxists and capitalists sort of felt this is the way of the future. And for Mumford, he would have an, a vision we might call communitarian today, which is... You know, the, the emphasis is on that, that somehow the, the strands of civil society, of trust between people, needs to be reestablished. And this is um, something that can be done through modern planning, ironically. This is, this is the sort of tension. He feels like it's possible for you to design community through things like... Uh, making nice parks, making nice intimate gardens. And it's this sort of environmental belief. And we've talked about this before, you know, whether being in a nice space, in a nice church, in a nice train station can actually change your life, can make you feel differently about other people. Um, I mean, for us, I the, the block we live on mm -hmm. is all like the whole block is all p families who have children between the ages of you know zero and ten mm -hmm. and th even though we have um private backyards the kids just run from one backyard to the other i mean they hop the fences and all just mm -hmm. play every every day it's this incredible it's like living on sesame street it's wonderful yeah no i mean <clears throat> you know the big fear for so many reformers in the early 20th century was you know places like Central Park did not allow play on them you kept off the grass so all these really kids, yeah like up until recently in fact arguably even today um Olmsted and the designers of Central Park wanted it to be a place of passive recreation. You went there, you enjoyed the views. It was like going to the National Park, basically. And they prohibited ball playing, kite flying, picnicking, any going on the grass originally. They didn't want people to be polluting, obviously, but they also felt that was contrary to the spirit of repose, reflection, which they wanted. That's absurd. Yeah, no, it is. But they had this very idealized notion that when you nature, that nature was a salve, that you go there and you just experience nature and that's enough for you to feel calmer, more humane, more empathetic. They didn't want people bringing their city ways into the park. Yeah. But then what happened is so all these kids who did want to go out and play, they couldn't go to the parks. So they had to play in the street. That was the only place open for them. So they were too, you know solutions to that. One solution, as reformers saw it, was to make playgrounds. The very first playgrounds were built in response to that, you know, in the early 20th century, where you had separate cordoned off areas for kids where they could go on swings and jungle gyms and work out all their stuff. But the other solution is, you know, something like this, where you're having these sort of open yards where, um, you know, neighbor, where you can keep your eyes on the street where the parents can watch their kids play but still be protected from the street, right? 
Um, it's interesting because, you know, and this is something maybe we'll talk a little later about, Jane Jacobs is famous for her ideas of eyes on the street, that a healthy urban community is a place where there are many different people, each of them looking around, each sort of aware of what's going on and can help if a kid, you know, is in trouble. And she thought of that as being antithetical to suburban life, where everyone's in their car, everyone's in their private house. But here you have uh, a suburb with eyes on the street. Um, it's, It's really not Levittown. We'll be back with a lot more about Sunnyside after these messages. If you're enjoying this show, you might also like some of the other podcasts on Race Car Radio. For instance, you might try Mind Your Own Business with Mike and Matt. Do you own or run your own company? I'm a small business owner, and let me tell you, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. But never fear, we're here to help. On Mind Your Own Business, Mike Gansel and Matt Plosiak, two brilliant consultants with decades of experience between them, take real questions from real small business owners and give them answers that help put them on the track to success. It's smart, funny, informative, and we promise it will help you make your company the best it can be. Listen and subscribe now to Mind Your Own Business with Mike and Matt at racecarradio.com. Race Car Radio is proud to support the work of IO Worldwide, a tenacious and dedicated organization working to address the root causes of poverty in West Africa. Because they believe that who a person is and where they come from should not solely determine what they are able to achieve. To learn about their work and how you can support it, please visit ayaworldwide.org. And now back to London's New York. And one of the major amenities of this little jewel of a neighborhood is Sunnyside Gardens Park, one of only two private members-only parks in the whole of New York City, the other being the famously Shishi Gramercy Park between 20th and 21st Street on the east side of Manhattan. So so this is, this is the famous Sunnyside Gardens Park, uh, of which I am a member. Yeah. So there's two different playgrounds. There's a playground for, like, two to seven-year-olds and at a playground for like seven to 14-year-olds. Yeah. There's tennis, there's there's basketball. This this is made to be big. There, there's like communal scooters and bikes. Huh. And so this is just an area that kids can wow, ride bikes around in. that's amazing. Soccer, picnic area. It's interesting comparing this to the typical New York City playground, right? And the typical playground, it very much is, you, you know, you know what you're going to get. There's going to be swings. There's going to be, uh, you know, a little cruddy bathroom place but there's such a variety here yeah fresh herbs that you can help yourself to you can put pizza they have a pizza box container they know who they're dealing with yeah um barbecue i mean it's it reminds me a little of like a german beer garden in some ways you have these arching trees letting dappled sunlight in uh grill areas well sit down for a second because i want to i want to talk a little bit about I have a weird ambivalence sure. about Sunnyside Gardens. Yes. Because it is the best place I've ever lived. It it really is idyllic. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And um, 
But at the same time, so the thing about it being communitarian, yeah, it is also very exclusionary. Yes. Yes. Um, it's very difficult to get an apartment or a house here. We rented an apartment for many years that was above the landlord's apartment in the house, and he never let us forget that we it wasn't our house. Mm. Now we're renting a whole house, but it took years to find one. They don't come up very often, yeah. and they're very expensive. And so the people who live here, it's not working class, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, those those houses cost one and a half, two million dollars to yeah. buy. Yeah. And this park, you have to, we resisted joining this park, even though it's wonderful and it's great because it's all closed off. We come here, you know, you come here on the weekend or in the evening and it's packed and there's people eating, you know, and barbecuing and having pizza and the kids can just run around. I can just let my four-year-old just go and it doesn't matter where he goes there's nothing dangerous here yeah and we know all the other parents and it's just it's this incredible you know communal thing but it's kind of expensive to join yeah. this park yeah. there's a multi-hundred dollar entrance fee you have to pay several hundred dollars a year and you have to volunteer your time and so it ex and they have very careful rules about which blocks you have to live on in order to be licensed to buy a membership yeah, yeah. And so there are other playgrounds in the neighborhood where you see, for want of a better word, brown people. Yeah, yeah. And they don't come here because they're not allowed. Yeah. And that makes me feel guilty and weird. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, you would feel guilty if you lived in any other struck pl place that was too expensive and, you know, exclusionary, right? Yeah. And. You know, it's not unique to this place, obviously. I mean, that's a problem just with, you know, our the way our economy is run right now, whether it's people's wages aren't high enough or housing is too expensive, however much you want it. The point is, yeah, that um, it's we're back to where these guys started. You know, how can you give quality housing to people of all kinds of incomes? And if you have one without the other it seems problematic and here we have quality housing that's so sensitive to what humans need in some ways and uh i mean it's it's been allowed to dangle out of people's reach well just the fact there's just one of these neighborhoods yeah i wish i wish there were a hundred of these neighborhoods all over queens i would feel better about living in it yeah yeah i mean you know i mean the the counterpart is we look at um where are the, you know, the, where, where, quote, the brown people living, right? And they're living, many of them, in public housing. And the ir irony is how public housing grew out of the, this very sort of conception, in some ways, of the Garden City, which is you're taking people out of these dirty streets where there's no grass and trees. You're putting them in areas that's affordable to them and where they have a degree of park space. The problem with there is, sure, you have the environment, you have the shell, you maybe have the policies, but you don't have policies to maintain those areas to keep them good and preserved and so I mean you go to areas where there are more brown people and you have the diversity but there's just you know they're becoming less of those places and they're not caring about them but you well, know and it's ghettoizing it's, so yeah. it's, if you have a community that's all people who are struggling financially mm -hmm. you know 
there's going to be a desperation there and can more be. crime and more, you know, just... Yeah, I mean, there can be. And you're just creating a gap, not just of incomes, but of actual, you know, the, the texture and quality of your environment, which is... Uh, yeah. And, guess, and and that's and that's what can make feeling in a place like this feel even more guilty, you know. Than, I mean, not that I'm leaving, because I, sure, yeah. I love it. But it, the, the thing is, I guess my question is, or what I'm getting at is, yeah. there's this interesting thing that happens where if you're really successful at creating a beautiful, functional living space for working class people, yeah, it seems that the inevitable result of that is rich people move in and buy those houses because they're so nice. Yeah. Well, that was what the philanthropy and 6% thing was supposed to get rid of, you know, that you aren't there to make as much money as possible. And it worked for a little bit, but uh, there was weren't enough other takers. I mean, they, in the 20s, you know, as today, like the government, the state government back then was saying, you know, we want to help give loans and mortgages to all of these cooperative ventures that will uh, reduce rents for poor people and still be nice places to live. And over and over again, private developers were just saying, um, you know, no thanks. Um, And it's really, um, you know, and and that's, it it was true then and it's true now. And uh, on the other hand, you know, there are all these other models. If you were to have, on the one hand, you could have the state providing some of these public housing and have income caps, right? So that's one model. But then, inevitably, those areas tend to look seen as, they're seen as, seen as substandard if only the poor live there, right? And uh, the difference between American public housing and European public housing is that European public housing was often meant for middle-income working-class people, not the poorest of the poor. But anyway, the other solution was housing cooperatives, where you're having labor unions and churches build their own housing for their own members. They're not interested in rich people outside their community. They're interested in their own folks. And that never really came out in America. In other countries, especially like in Germany or France, most public housing for a time was being built, I say public housing, but most social housing was built for cooperatives, for building societies that were given loans by the government, and they would build for their own members, you know. But uh, in America, it was one or the other. It was either free market, you know, where you're going to get priced out, or it's often public housing, which is considered disreputable. Um and so, yeah, as it is now when uh, it's, you know, winner take all, um, it's going to be rich. Now, I'll say one more other thing, and this is the thing about Mumford and regional planning. Um, so what we have in America right now are these huge concentrations of wealth, um, not just in individuals, but in places. You're having everyone has to move to the city in order to get good any job that has a prospect of upward mobility. There's huge population pressures in these cities and it makes the rent go up because there's so much competition. 
And there's some people who are saying, okay, well, in order to stop this, we just need to build more housing in the cities, increase the supply. But you can never build enough houses for all the people moving in here and still have, in some ways, a livable city, right? It's, it's just so many people. And that's what Lewis Mumford was saying. He was saying we can't accept these concentrations of people. What we need to do is decentralized jobs, not just decentralize them to the West Coast, you know, for like where the labor is cheap, right? But decentralize them into, let's say, Utica and Kingston and, uh, you know, upstate places and decrease the population pressure on cities. And through that population pressure on, um, on small, uh, you know, on, 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 on low-income renters. Because really, you know, I think about this, like what rich people are looking for or what middle-income people are looking for when they're moving to the city is often just a contrast to the suburb, right? They want a place where there's a cafe. They want a place with old houses. They want a walkable place. And the damn shame in America is those are so few. You know, you, you look at a map there's like tiny percentages of those kind of neighborhoods. And so all of the pressure are in those areas. The irony is now suburbs, in order to compete with cities, are often building downtowns, building more villagey sort of areas, so that because those are what's attracting many people in some respects. And if you were to do more of that, maybe less people would need to move into places like Harlem or Brooklyn or the Lower East Side, you know. But as it is now, it's just... You know, every single house with a cornice is going to become gentrified. Every house built before 1920 or 30 is going to become gentrified because... Oh, that ship has sailed. That happened 10 years ago. Yeah, because it's just by some miracle, there happened to be this one moment in human history where you had walkable, potentially, you know, pretty livable spaces with ornamented ho- with ornamented houses that were close to where a lot of the main economies uh, that were around 100 years ago still are. You know, it's such a freaking irony, you know, that it's just this one moment of urbanism set up the paradigm for what we still think of as the good urban life today. And in Europe, they've been doing it for hundreds and hundreds of years. They have all these villages, all of these communities that have that kind of housing. But in America, we're just these little babies. We had barely any time to build these places before highways come and suburbanization comes. And uh, we're stuck, you know, between uh, Levittown and these small areas with good housing and livable, potentially livable areas that the rich are going to move into and gentrify. And the poor folks are going to have to move out to the suburbs, which these, some of these middle-class people escape from. Like the irony is Levittown and all these inner ring suburbs are doing, are where most poverty is happening in a lot of cities nowadays. It's, we're having an inversion, a demographic inversion. And if poor people were having a tough time in central cities, at least they were close to municipal governments, at least they were close to, you know, some sort of welfare provision. You know, good luck Levittown trying to get the funds to provide for all the poor working class people who are moving out of the city and are bringing some urban problems, you know to these outer rinks suburbs that don't have the capacity to deal with it, at least right now. My name is David Hoffman, and I produce this show. 
With me, as always, is Daniel London. New episodes of London to New York come out just about every other week. Never miss one by subscribing to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and most of your other favorite podcast apps. You can find those links at racecarradio.com slash London's New York, and that's with no apostrophe before the S. We'd love to hear your feedback on this episode and your ideas for future shows. Please come interact with the show on Facebook and Twitter, at LNY Podcast. London's New York is a production of Race Car Radio, www.racecarradio.com. So this is a passage by Lewis Mumford. I sometimes uh, recite this passage when I'm at the Brooklyn Bridge, and it's from his uh, autobiography. So he's talking about his experiences growing up, exploring the city on his own. I loved the great bridges and walked back and forth over them year after year. But as often happens with repeated experiences, one memory stands out above all others. A twilight hour in early spring, it was March, I think, when, starting from the Brooklyn end, I faced into the west wind sweeping over the rivers from New Jersey. The ragged slate-blue cumulus clouds that gathered over the horizon left open patches for the light of the waning sun to shine through. And finally, as I reached the middle of the Brooklyn Bridge, the sunlight spread across the sky, forming a halo around the jagged mountains of skyscrapers, with the darkened loft buildings and warehouses huddling below in the foreground. The towers, topped by the golden pinnacles of the new Woolworth building, still caught the light even as it began to ebb away. Three quarters of the way across the bridge, I saw the skyscrapers in the deepened darkness become slowly honeycombed with lights, until, before I reached the Manhattan end, these buildings piled up in a dazzling mass against the indigo sky. Here was my city, immense, overpowering, flooded with energy and light. There below lay the river and the harbor, catching the last flakes of gold on their waters, with the black tugs free from their barges, plodding dockward, the ferryboats lumbering from pier to pier, the tramp steamers slowly crawling towards the sea. The Statue of Liberty erectly standing, little curls of steam coming out of boat whistles or towered chimneys, with the rumbling elevated train and trolley cars just below me on the bridge, They moved in a relentless tide to carry tens of thousands homeward. And there was I, breasting the march wind, drinking in the city and the sky, both vast, yet both contained in me, transmitting through me the great mysterious will that had made them, and the promise of the new day that was still to come. The world at that moment opened before me, challenging me, beckoning me, demanding something of me that it would take more than a lifetime to give, but raising all my energies by its own vivid promise to a higher pitch. In that sudden revelation of power and beauty, all the confusions of adolescence dropped from me, and I trod the narrow, resilient boards of the footway with a new confidence that came, not from my isolated self alone, but from the collective energies I had confronted and risen to. I cannot hope to bring back the exultation of that moment. The wonder of it was like the wonder of an orgasm in the body of one's beloved, as if one's whole life had led up to that moment and swiftly culminated there. And yet I have carried the sense of that occasion, along with two or three other similar moments, equally enveloping and pregnant, throughout my life. They remain, not as a constant presence, but as a momentary flash, reminding me of heights approached and scaled, as a mountain climber might carry 
carry with him the memory of some daring ascent never to be achieved again. Since then, I have courted that moment more than once on the Brooklyn Bridge, but the exact conjunction of weather and light and mood and inner readiness has never come back. That experience remains alone, a fleeting glimpse of the utmost possibilities life may hold for man. Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>